This Advent season here at Life Church, we are taking a break from the usual stories of shepherds and manger scenes and angel choruses that we might encounter um, during the Christmas season. We're going to save those for another year. And we're doing that really because we recognize that it would be possible and even easy for us to fill our lives and our schedules with Jesus-y kind of stuff this Christmas and yet still miss Jesus altogether. But it is possible, maybe even easy, for us to sing about and to celebrate the coming of Jesus, but to miss out on the glory and transcendence of the Jesus who came. And so in response to that, and in order to, to set our hearts more fully on the glory of Jesus. We're looking just at encounters that Jesus had with people in the Gospel of John. So we're walking through John's Gospel and we're just considering different encounters that Jesus had with people there and what those encounters reveal to us about the nature and person and work of the baby who was laid in the manger on that first Christmas morning. Today we're looking at the encounter between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Now, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3, it's, it's a famous one, it's memorable, it's quotable even, it's profound, and it also helps us to answer right, one of the most critical questions that we can ask. What does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? Right? What makes you a follower of Jesus? Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, it helps us answer that question. And that's a question that people try to answer in a lot of different ways, if we're honest. Some people would say, very simply, that it's what you believe that makes you a Christian. Right? It's what you believe that makes you a follower of Jesus. And so, according to such people, Christians are those who believe the teaching of the Bible and who believe in what the Bible says about the identity of Jesus. Therefore, being a Christian is primarily about right thinking, right thinking about God, about life, about spiritual things. Unfortunately, the book of James tells us that even the demons actually believe the right things, right? Even the demons believe that Jesus is Lord, though James tells us they shudder when they acknowledge that reality. But that tells us that Christianity has to be about something more than simply believing right things. And so other people in response to that will say that Christianity, it's also about doing right things, right? It's about what you do that makes you a Christian. And at the very least, that allows us, that criteria allows us to distinguish between real Christians and the kind of folk that just show up on Christmas and Easter. But can we really boil following Jesus down to a list of things that you do and a list of things that you don't do? Right? Can we really reduce Christianity to right belief plus this like massive moral to-do list? If so, how could we ever claim that Christianity amounts to good news? Right? If the Christian life is about right belief and then just walking this moral tightrope, being careful not to fall off on either side, how in the world is that a message of hope and peace? Right? What's the good news in don't fall off the rope. Now, I'm not arguing with the fact that Christians believe right things and do right things. But do either of those realities really indicate what it means to be a Christian? 
Now, as you encounter Jesus in the Gospels, one of the startling things about his message is the fact that what Jesus says about you is actually infinitely more significant than anything that you say about Jesus, right? The truth that Jesus declares about you, that matters so much more than whatever truth you might believe in and declare about him. And at the same time, the work that Jesus has done for you That matters so much more than whatever work you might do for him. And so again, Christians, we believe the right things, but we believe the right things in light of the fact of what God has said about us. And we do right things, but we recognize that anything that we do for God, right, it's not even on the same planet as the things that Jesus has done for us. These are the issues that are really revealed at the heart of this conversation between Jesus and and Nicodemus in John chapter three. I want us to see how these realities really come together and reveal to us what Jesus came to accomplish when he came for us on that first Christmas morning. And so let me read our passage for us. We're in John chapter three this morning, looking at verses one through 15. This is God's word for us today. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. And so a dude named Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus at night. Who is he? Well, our passage tells us a couple of things about Nicodemus that are really significant. First, according to verse one, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, right? The Pharisees were this ultra-conservative sect of first century Jews. They emphasized heavily believing the right things, and doing the right things. They were incredibly legalistic about their doctrine, and they were incredibly legalistic about the way they lived their lives, especially the way they obeyed the Old Testament laws. 
The name Pharisee actually means separate ones. And that reveals the fact that the Pharisees believed that by believing the right things and doing the right things, they were rightly keeping themselves separate from everyone else because of their beliefs and because of their actions. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. The second thing we should learn about Nicodemus, also from verse one, is the fact that he is a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now elsewhere in the New Testament, this group is called the Sanhedrin. And they were a group of about 70 Jews who were appointed by the Roman government to help maintain peace and order in Israel while Israel was under Roman rule. And so to be a member of this group, to be one of the Sanhedrin, that means really that you had to have a lot of clout. You had to be a person of influence, a person of power. Nicodemus is one of these people. He's a big deal in other words. The third thing we learn about Nicodemus We don't learn it until we come to verse 10, but I want you to notice there that when Jesus addresses him, he calls him Israel's teacher. Not one of Israel's teachers, but singular, Israel's teacher. And there's a very good chance, Bible scholars believe, there's a very good chance that Nicodemus, he was sort of like the master teacher in Israel at this time, that he was like the key religious leader and authority. And so he's sort of like a a first century Yoda of the Jews, right? The teacher that all other teachers look to, to like learn from. That didn't really seem to land. I'm not going to make that analogy in the second service. Never mind, I am. My teenage sons will be there and they'll really appreciate it. But yeah, so you get the, you get the impression, right, that, that Nicodemus, he's this dude who speaks with some measure of authority, right? Even when he comes to Jesus in verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, right? He says, we know, even though he's by himself, we know, right? Nicodemus, he's used to people listening to what he says. He speaks like he has some clout, like he has some authority because he's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, and he's Israel's teacher. But the last thing we learn about Nicodemus, maybe the most significant, it's subtle though, I want you to hear what I'm saying. I want you to notice the fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Right? John emphasizes that detail. Why does John tell us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night? Well, the simple answer is because Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and John is merely faithfully recording that historical detail for us. Perhaps the crowds around Jesus during the day have been so thick that Nicodemus hasn't been able to get access to Jesus. Perhaps Nicodemus is a little bit shy or somewhat reluctant to let people see him, Israel's teacher, approaching Jesus, right? He, he He wants to keep that under wraps, and so he comes under the shadow of darkness. We don't really know for sure. But John tells us that Nicodemus comes at night because Nicodemus comes at night. However, I think if we understand the gospel of John rightly, we realize that there's something more to what John is actually saying about Nicodemus here. What John is trying to convey to us is the fact that at least spiritually speaking, Nicodemus is in the dark. But he comes at night because he cannot see yet. He cannot see the light. You see, in the Gospel of John, light and darkness, they're, they're important themes. Light, it represents understanding and belief, while darkness represents like a shroud of unbelief. 
So for example, in John 8, Jesus, he says this, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so light, it means understanding, and Nicodemus comes at night because he's walking in the darkness. Darkness means like unbelief and its consequences. Again, the words of Jesus, this is John chapter 12, he says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Right? This, these are the undertones here of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. As John's writing this story, he's emphasizing the fact that spiritually speaking, even though he's a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, and Israel's teacher, Nicodemus, he's in the dark, spiritually speaking. How can that be? Why is Nicodemus in the dark? What's his problem? And more than that, what's he looking for when he comes to Jesus? Well, let's think about it for a minute. As a Pharisee and as a member of the Sanhedrin and as Israel's teacher, Nicodemus, he's lived his whole life believing that what he believes and what he does, that if you put those things together, that's going to secure him a place in God's kingdom. Right, Nicodemus, he's built his entire life on that idea that right belief and right action, marry those two things to one another and you're in. And now, really, he's ready to cash in those chips, right? He knows that Jesus is somebody. He's seen the signs. He's heard the stories of the miracles that Jesus is beginning to perform. And so he comes to Jesus really completely confident in his religious resume. He's thinking, if Jesus really is from God, well, then that must mean he's about to restore God's kingdom. And if anybody belongs to God's kingdom, surely it's me. Pharisee, Sanhedrin, Israel's teacher. All my life, I've believed the right things and I've done the right things. So surely I belong. But the point of this story is that believing the right things and doing the right things, even putting them together, that's not enough. Right? Jesus shows Nicodemus to see God's kingdom, to be part of God's kingdom, you have to be reborn. And until you're reborn, you're in the dark. However, Jesus, he points Nicodemus to the light. Verse three, Jesus answers him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right, Jesus here, he's direct, he's clear, he's definitive. He says one thing is necessary to see God's kingdom. It's not your resume, it's not what you've believed, and it's certainly not what you've done. No, to see God's kingdom, you must be born again. To see God's kingdom, you must have new birth. And Nicodemus, he's confused by this. And so he responds in verse four, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus, he replies with bewilderment about what Jesus has said. But I don't think for what it's worth that it's because Nicodemus is a dummy. Right? I don't think he's failing to grasp what Jesus is saying. Right? I don't think that he thinks that Jesus is talking about like physically crawling back up his mother's womb so that you can slide out a second time. Right? I, just, I just think Nicodemus isn't willing to believe that the kingdom of God might actually work that way. You see, Nicodemus, he's invested his whole life and all of his energy and, 
everything that he's done really into his first birth. But he's lived his whole life thinking that if he just believed rightly enough and behaved rightly enough, then he would see the kingdom of God. And now he's saying to Jesus, don't be naive. There's no second birth. This life is all you get. You gotta, you gotta do right with what you get in this first life. Because nobody gets a second chance. Nobody gets a do-over. That sounds too good to be true, Jesus. That's what Nicodemus really is saying. He's suspicious because of how good this idea of a new birth really sounds. It's a bit like when I walk into my house and I see my children doing chores voluntarily. It's too good to be true. The other day I walked into the kitchen and one of my sons was washing dishes. No one else was around. As far as I knew, his mother hadn't asked him to wash dishes. He's, he's washing dishes. And I looked at him and I just said, dude, what's wrong? And he looked back at me and he's like, what do you mean what's wrong? And I was like, what did you do? <laughs> In other words, what heinous crime are you trying to cover up by doing this good deed right now, right? I fully expected because he's washing the dishes, even though nobody told him to, that I'd walk into his room and find like a dead body in there. And he's just trying to distract me from that reality. A child doing chores without being told to do chores. That's too good to be true, isn't it? That's what Nicodemus thinks here. He can't fathom the possibility of a new birth. He thinks it's too good to be true. There must be some catch. But Jesus makes it very clear that new birth is exactly what he is offering. Verse five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What do you think Jesus means when he says that? What do you think he means when he talks about a birth of water and the Spirit? Well, we need to keep in mind here that Jesus is talking to Israel's teacher. Right, he's talking to Nicodemus who has spent his entire life studying scripture. Right, Nicodemus is the dude. If they had Sunday school attendance awards when Nicodemus was a child, he would have won all of those awards. If they had those weird sort of like Bible quiz bowl trivia contests when Nicodemus was a child, he would have won all of those contests. And if they had prestigious Ivy League level seminaries when Nicodemus was going to seminary, he would have been to that seminary, right? Nicodemus, he is Israel's teacher. Homeboy knows his Bible. And so Jesus, in speaking to him, he speaks his language, Specifically, Jesus, he alludes to the Old Testament promises about God giving new life through water in the Spirit. Promises like we read about in Ezekiel chapter 36, where the prophet, he speaks on behalf of God, and he promises a total transformation of heart and soul. He promises that the Messiah, when he comes, will make God's people new. Here's that promise. God says through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
when Jesus describes a new birth of water and the Spirit, he's referring back to Old Testament promises like that, promises that God would completely transform the hearts of his people, promises that God would make his people in a real way new. When Jesus is saying that we must be born of these things to enter his kingdom, but he's saying that we must undergo this total transformation of heart. And without this total transformation, we will never, ever be more than we are right now at this very moment. Right? That's the point of verse 6. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's like saying, what's born of a pig is a pig, and that's what's born of a horse is a horse. In other words, if you want to be something other than what you are, you cannot simply be reborn as a better version of you. You have to be born by the Spirit. You have to be made new. And that's what Jesus promises to do. Now, there are a couple of key lessons for us this Christmas as we think about what Jesus is saying here and as we really like drill down on what Jesus is saying here. The first one is, I just need to speak to the fact that there are probably a lot of us here who aren't really truly convinced that we need a new birth. Now, maybe we're convinced in our minds that we need a new birth, but in our hearts, in our operating centers, like we're not really and truly convinced of that. So in our minds, we might acknowledge, yeah, yeah, I need Jesus to make me new. But the truth is, in our hearts, we're still putting all of our confidence in what we believe and what we do, just like Nicodemus is. Essentially, we're striving to make ourselves better rather than asking Jesus to make us new. Let me explain. Many of us, we have this image in our minds of the person that we would like to become. Right? We dream and dream about the improvements that we would like to make in our lives, right? in this area or in that area. Maybe it's physical stuff, right? Like maybe you'd like to lose a little bit of weight or get your cholesterol down. Maybe we would like to become a more patient parent. Maybe we'd like to overcome some kind of bad habit or even an addiction. But all of us, we have this vision of the person that we would like to become. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's not bad. But the problem is, and this is a massive problem for us, the problem is that many of us, we're really only interested in Jesus because we think that he'll help us with our own self-improvement plans. Right? All of the Jesus-y stuff that we do at Christmas and all year long Really, it's not about Jesus. It's just about us bringing Jesus into our personal self-improvement project. It's just about using Jesus to help us become the person that we already want to become. In essence, we use Jesus because we think and believe that he came to help us to be the person that we really want to be. And so if the main reason you bring Jesus into your life is to help you with your parenting, Right, you, you keep losing your temper. You realize that you're going to screw your kids up royally if you don't fix things, and you don't want to be on the hook for a ton of therapy bills later in their lives. And so if the main reason you bring Jesus into your life is because you realize you need Jesus' help in raising your children, well, I'll tell you, Jesus can help you with that. 
But if that's why you're here, you're not really here for Jesus or even for your kids. You're just here for you. And in the same way, if the main reason you bring Jesus into your life is to kind of help you overcome some sort of emotional or psychological challenge, right? You're looking to Jesus to help you fight your fear, your anxiety, your stress, your loneliness. Well, Jesus can and does help you fight those things. But again, if that's why you're here, you're not here for Jesus. You're here for you and for the things that Jesus can do for you. And if the main reason that you bring Jesus into your life is because you're longing for some kind of purpose or direction, if you really want your life to count and you think that giving yourself to Jesus will make your life count, well, of course, living a life for Jesus is a life that's worth living. But if you come to Jesus only because you're looking for purpose or significance, man, you're not really here for Jesus. You're here for you. Because if we come to Jesus and All we're looking for is for Jesus to make our lives better. If that is the motive of our hearts, if what we're looking for is some assistance with our personal self-improvement plans, then there's a very good chance that we've missed out completely on who Jesus really is and what Jesus is really offering us. Church, Jesus will make you better. He will improve your life. But making you better improving your life, that is not his main goal. His main goal is not to fix you up. His main goal is to make you new. Do you believe that? For me, the pin dropped on that when I was about 21, 22 years old, and I read through C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity for the first time. Now, I feel like I've, I've quoted from Lewis a little bit of late, and so I do want to tell you not everything that Lewis said is like solid. Like there are some questions that I have about his theology. And so don't just read Lewis and think everything that he said is like gospel truth. But this, he hits the nail on the head. Listen to what Lewis wrote. He said, a world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. In other words, Jesus' goal is not to fix you up. Your personal improvement plan is not his priority. He's not here to produce nice people. And furthermore, your self-improvement plan, it might actually damn you because it has the potential to convince you that all you need is self-improvement. But you need so much more than that. I need so much more than that. Lewis, he goes on, he says, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Do you get that illustration? It's not about teaching a horse to do horse things better. It's about making a horse into something completely new. And church, that's the point of Christianity. That's the essence of Christianity. It's not about Jesus coming and fixing us up. It's about Jesus making us new, about Jesus giving us new birth. And church, we need new birth because our hearts are broken. Right? Apart from God's regenerating work, we are people who are totally messed up. 
We are, across the board, far more self-centered than we realize we are. And we are, at the same time, far less God-centered than we ought to be. Right? Far more self-centered than we realize we are and far less God-centered than we ought to be. Do you remember the last time you had an argument with someone? Right, the last time things got a little bit heated in a conversation between you and a spouse or a sibling or a child or a coworker. Right, I mean, just think about that argument that you had with somebody in your life. I would wager a lot of money that after that argument was over, right, and it doesn't matter who said what, it doesn't really matter even what the argument was about at all, but I would bet a lot of money that after that argument ended, you spent some time replaying that argument in your head, didn't you? This is what I do, right? I thought over and over about the things that were said. And you know what? I never in that moment, when I'm replaying an argument in my head, I never think, oh, you know what? So-and-so made a really good point, right? I really ought to listen to what so-and-so was saying there. Like, I never think that. What I think in my head when I'm replaying that argument in my head is, ooh, that's what I wish I had said, Right? I wish I had said this at that moment and really put them in their place. Right? And we, when we replay arguments, we do this thing where suddenly the person that we're arguing with is like bowing down to us because of our spiritual and moral and rhetorical superiority. Right? We put them in their place, which is just a window into how much we're all about us. Right? We're, we're far more self-centered than we realize we are. Right? Everything is all about me all the time which means everything that I do, even the good things that I do for the Lord, I can twist them and make them serve myself. We're way more self-centered than we realize we are. And we're not nearly as God-centered as we ought to be. You might have heard me illustrate this point in this way before. Like imagine that there is a woman, a single mother, where she has one son and really nothing else in life and because she loves her son, and though she has very limited means, she, she just wants what's best for her son. And so she works and works and works. Three jobs. She sacrifices everything, like her own social life, her physical well-being, her, her mental health, because she wants to give her son the opportunities in life that she really wants him to have. And through those opportunities, the young man, he, he thrives. Right? He's successful in school. He's good at extracurriculars. As a result, he gets into a good college she keeps up the three jobs so that, you know, he can focus on his studies and she pays his way through college and eventually he graduates right at the top of his class and, like, he moves on to get a good job for a prestigious company. Now, how would you feel about that young man if I told you 10 years later, after graduation, after he's entered the workforce, that he never called his mother, maybe on holidays, maybe on her birthday. He visits her no more than once a year that he does almost nothing to invest in his relationship with her, even though she basically sacrificed her life to give him everything that he had. Wouldn't you agree, if I told you about that young man, that there was a serious problem in that young man's heart? Well, of course you would. Wouldn't you also agree that that same serious problem exists in our hearts? Because we have a God who sacrificed everything to give us everything. He did all of that freely by his grace. Yet we orient so little of our lives around him. We visit him on holidays. 
We call him when we need something. But none of that really reflects the magnitude of what he has done for us. Why not? Because our hearts aren't as God-centered as they ought to be. We should live every moment of every day in worshipful adoration of our God. The praise and glory of God should be on our lips every moment, proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done should be the normal reality of our lives, leveraging our lives for God's mission should be our priority. We should give sacrificially because all of that reflects a right response to the God who created us, the God who loved us while we were at our worst, and the God who paid the ultimate price to redeem us. Do we really need new birth? Isn't that self-improvement plan enough? No, it's not. Of course we need new birth because we're way more self-centered and not nearly as God-centered as we ought to be. Church, an improved version of you is never going to be enough. An improved version of me is never going to be enough. We need new versions of you in me. And that's exactly what Christ offers. That's exactly what Christ has provided. He descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He robed himself in the frail limits of humanity on that first Christmas. The author of life wrote himself into the story of life. The creator confined himself to his creation, and he did all of that so that he might be lifted up on the cross, giving anyone who looks to him in true faith new birth, new life. You know, sometimes I hear Christians say things like, our God is a God of second chances. And I appreciate what that statement means. Like, I appreciate what they're, what they're trying to say. But I want us to recognize this morning, that is a half-truth at best. Because the truth is, you and me, if all we get is a second chance, we're going to blow it. In fact, if we get a third chance and a fourth chance and a millionth chance, we're going to ruin all of those chances because we're so self-centered and we're not nearly God-centered enough. Right? If all God is is a God of a million chances for us, then you and I will still be damned. If there aren't enough chances for Nicodemus, there aren't enough chances for you and for me. Our hearts, they're broken. We're going to waste all of those chances unless Jesus makes us new, unless we can have new life, new birth. How can these things be, Nicodemus asks. The answer is the essence of Christianity, only by grace, only by grace. That's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. This morning, we're going to close a little bit differently than we normally do. Um, I'm just going to create a space where we can dwell on and reflect on a couple of questions before we sing together again. And so I'll ask each of these questions, and then I'm just going to give you a minute to, to think for yourself. My hope and my prayer is that in this time that we create, the Holy Spirit would really press these realities into all of our hearts this morning. Here's the first one. 
What might be the signs, however subtle, that I am just like Nicodemus? In other words, how am I pursuing a better life in the place of a new life? Secondly, this morning, what signs can I see in myself of real, new, spiritual, born-again life? In other words, what evidence is there that I'm not just a better version of my old self, but a born-again, new self? Finally, this morning, what's one way that I can live a more fully God-centered life this Christmas?